You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Revelation chapter 5. Next week, Virginia and I are in uh, Knoxville, Tennessee. I'm preaching at Cedar Springs Presbyterian Church. Uh, And so we'll take a week off um, from our Revelation study. And then we'll be back in chapter 6 the weekend after. Just to track very briefly, John introduces himself in the first chapter as our brother and companion in the patient endurance. And then he introduces Jesus. He has a vision of Christ. And as I've said before, there's seven visions of Christ in the book of Revelation. First one coming in chapter 1. And then the second one coming scattered through the letters to the seven churches. Each letter to the seven churches is introduced with a phrase that comes from the description of uh, Christ in the first chapter. Chapter 3 concludes with Jesus standing at the door and knocking. And he is earnest. He says, here, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. The question really there is, do you have an open heart to respond to Jesus? The image here of hospitality in uh, Middle Eastern custom, of course someone would answer the door um, and invite them in. And he concludes then those seven letters to the churches with that image of an open door. And that's the open door that gets picked up with in chapter 4, verse 1. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open. And we talked last week at length about Christ the center and this centering throne around which the 24 elders and the four living creatures Uh, everything in chapter 4, the first part, uh, is all centered around the throne of Christ. That image and vision of Christ the center continues on in chapter 5, which is where we are uh, this morning. Let me begin with prayer. Lord God, we do want to center ourselves in you. We want to place our lives and every aspect of our life in orbit around you. We ask that by your Holy Spirit, you might give us that uh, wisdom and understanding as to how to do that, and that you would guide in that. We thank you, Lord, for the gospel preached today in this church, for your honor and for your glory. And together we praise you in the name of Christ. Amen. So chapter 5, you have a study sheet, and I've uh, written it out there. Although it's, it's great if you follow along in your Bible. This is the NIV translation. I'll read it. Listen carefully. This is God's word. Then I saw the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth 
open the scroll or could open the scroll or even look inside it. And I wept. And I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center before the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne, and when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God members of every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom of priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. And then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand, and they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. The word of the Lord. Did everybody grab a sheet as they came in? There's a study sheet there. Four and five describe the same scene, the centering throne of Christ. We spoke about uh, the importance of that centering throne uh, last time. Now we have a very personal experience on the Apostle John's part as he participates in this throne scene. He sees in the right hand of the one who sits on the throne a scroll, and that scroll is covered with words on both sides, front and back. Now the question then is, what does that scroll signify? And it's sealed up and what is going to take place in chapter 6 is the breaking of those seals to disclose what is on that scroll. If I might cut through a few questions here, I believe that what's on that scroll is the culmination and the consummation of salvation history. It is the truth that is going to be revealed in the church age and at the end of the church age. But no one's there to open the scroll. And John begins to weep. Now the question is, why does he weep? 
he weeps and he weeps. I mean, you, it's descriptive of a highly emotional scene. The mighty angels proclaiming in a loud voice, who's worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? And no one's there to open the scroll. No one in heaven and on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside and I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll. And then an elder says, one of the 24 elders says, don't weep. Don't weep because of the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed and he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. What's really interesting to me in the history of understanding um, this passage is how Frederick Nietzsche, who knew the book of Revelation, was really taken by this scene and actually angered at John's weeping. Because he saw, Nietzsche saw, no good reason for the weeping. And John's weeping embodied what he felt was the weakness of Christianity. The longing of Christianity for something more than the brutal facts of a nature alone world. That Christianity had invented through the myth of love this idea of repentance, of the sin, of grace, of salvation, of uh, all of that, uh, of all of that was an invention, a myth that was played out. And so Nietzsche took, he understood the dynamic of the book of Revelation as did D.H. Lawrence, a kind of disciple of Nietzsche later on, and damned John for weeping. You haven't accepted the brutal facts of a nature alone world, was Nietzsche's point. Nietzsche lived uh, at the end of the uh, 19th century, committed suicide in 1900. In a way, he, he took the facts as he understood it of our secular age and drove them to its logical conclusion. There's only two kinds of people, he argued, the exploiter and the exploited. There is no will to, uh, there is no incarnate one. There is only the incarnation of the will to power. And what's interesting about him is, you see, now secularists don't talk with Christian language. But at the turn of the 20th century there, the end of the 19th, the turn of the 20th century, there's seats over here. Um, I think we do have our quorum now, so maybe this will... Um, and there's two right here. There's one right at my right hand, which has a lot of significance revelationally. Um, <laughs> Nietzsche spoke in Christian terminology to refute it. And that's what makes him, I think, especially interesting. And that's why he's so popular into the 21st century. Because he does give voice to uh, the heresy of Christianity from a secular standpoint. 
Uh, it's under number two. Um, I th think the second paragraph there under number two, Nietzsche argued that Christianity used the myth of love to foster an illusion. He contended in real life it's only a matter of strong and weak wills. Christianity was created out of fear of an incurable pessimism, the avoidance of a deep-down, unteachable, unyielding spiritual faith that life itself is the will to power. Nietzsche complained for two millennia, we have been condemned to the sight of this new type of invalid, the sinner. Everywhere the sinner, everywhere dumb torment, extreme fear, the agony of tortured heart, the convulsions of unknown happiness, the cry for redemption. He called Christianity an orgy of feeling and condemned it for just not facing the hard facts of a secular world. This is, and I, I think Nietzsche's great for giving us sort of the bold contrast, this is why John wept. He wept because if there is no answer, if there is no consummation, if there is no salvation, if there is no judgment, if there is no grace of God, if there is no God, well, then there's nothing. And so this is a, it's an existential weeping on John's part. Uh, he's just not moved in his emotions. If there is no one to open the scroll, if there is no one who's in charge of the revelation, if there is no truth to be known, you weep. You're in agony. You're in nihilistic despair. And that's why sometimes I think today the, the suicides that take place are, in a way, uh, existential suicides. Uh, and they're really, uh, they're people that have succeeded in making a name for themselves, and yet they come to the end of that and say, well, there's really nothing to live for. The person that comes to my mind is around the time that Anthony Bourdain took his life and what, also the woman, Kate, is it? Kate? Kate? Spade. Sp Spade. Spade. Uh -huh. Kate Spade. Remember there was also the baggage handler for Alaskan Airlines up in Seattle? that took a plane and flew it around and then crashed it. And he had left a note, I'm kind of a normal guy, but I've just got a few screws loose. And as it turns out, he had lots of friends, was well-related, well-respected uh, in his job. Everybody kind of liked him. I mean, there was no glaring sort of uh, difficulty, apparently. John weeps. And I think that, you know, I really think it's worth kind of dwelling on that if you really don't, John and Nietzsche both really had the courage of their convictions. Nietzsche's convictions were in an understanding that there really was nothing to live for. And he ended up, that conviction drove him mad and he took his life. 
John has the courage of his convictions because someone's there to open the scroll and to reveal uh, what 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 life is worthwhile in living. So the uh, the elder said to John, this is in uh, verse 4, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. And he's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then he sees a lamb. A lamb looking as if it had been slain. Now this is the first time John's preferred way of speaking of Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God, is introduced. Up until this point, the language of the Lamb hasn't been used, but it will be used more times than any other personal reference for Jesus, 28 times. And remember, we've said that uh, the numbers have a kind of symbolic language to them. So four being symbolic like the four creatures, north, south, east, and west, of all of creation. Seven being a symbolic number for completion and perfection. Four times seven, twenty-eight. That's not by chance that John uses the reference to the Lamb twenty-eight times because he's saying, in a sense, this is the person who is perfect for creation, the Lamb. And of course, this uh, if you turn the page over, this lamb symbolism has you know great depth within it. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John introduces the concept in the New Testament to the lamb. And then in addition to that, we go back all the way to Genesis where Abel and Cain and Abel offers a lamb, and he sacrifices that lamb, he kills the lamb, as opposed to Cain's uh, offering of first fruits from his harvest. Two good offerings, as it were. God chose Abel's and informed Cain of that. Cain could have gotten on board, but instead he felt very offended, uh, took Abel's life. In a way, Abel not only gives the lamb is a sacrifice, but he becomes a sacrificial lamb. And one of the things that blows me away is God setting Abel up without any kind of information or guidance, and Abel stands out there as that vulnerable sacrificial lamb. But the language builds. Of course, the Abraham is told to offer his son, and Isaac says to Abraham, well, you've got everything here for the sacrifice but the sacrifice, the lamb. And Abraham says to Isaac, God will provide a lamb. And uh, and God ends up doing that. Um, But again, the irony there is that Abraham was spared from sacrificing his son, and yet God the Father does sacrifice his son. And, of course, the Passover lamb and the Exodus, the epicenter of redemptive analogy through all of Scripture until the cross, always pointing to the cross, and the prophet Isaiah uh, picturing the suffering servant of Israel as a sacrificial lamb. 
All of that to take hold of John's symbolism of the lamb. I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. So at the really center of this centering throne is a sacrificial lamb. And the reason I'd suggest that John locks into this lamb imagery is that he never wants us to forget that at the heart of our relationship with God is the redemption that Christ has provided through his cross and through an atoning sacrifice. And you just can't really have Christianity without that centering reality. If you want a Christianity minus that, you don't have Christianity. You don't have the gospel. Number five, uh, well, uh, yeah, we can get to five. Redemption songs of praise. There's five hymns in this uh, description in chapter four and five. In the fourth chapter, verse eight, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is to come. This song of ceaseless praise, there's these five hymns that respond to the description of the lamb that was slain, but paradoxically is also uh, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Uh, To continue reading, the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are seven spirits of God sent out into all the world. What do the seven horns signify? What do the seven eyes signify? Remember, in interpreting the book of Revelation, you don't draw a literal picture. You think emblematically, you think metaphorically, you think pictorially, uh, but you don't draw a diagram. Uh, The seven horns speak of power. Seven eyes speak of wisdom. You've got this omnipotent, omniscient one who's yet described as a lamb. The paradox is supposed to be poignant. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders took up the scroll, fell down before the lamb, and each one had a harp. They're holding golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of God's people, and they sang a new song, saying, and now this is the the third song, Uh, The first one is in chapter 4, verse 8. The second one is in chapter 4, verse 11. You are worthy, our Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. It's a hymn of exaltation over the creation of God. And then the third, uh, in verse 9 of chapter 5, you are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe, and language, and people, and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. It's interesting how good theology is set to music, that the poet expresses this uh, profound truth, this song of redemption, uh, the global impact of this church. It's now no longer centered in anything geographic, or in anything genealogical, it is centered in Jesus Christ and the Lamb that was slain. In verse 11, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels 
So, you know, this kind of encircling uh, ex, uh, this encircling uh, expression of praise that encompasses everything. I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000, and they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice. They were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory. The fifth hymn is an angel anthem, or the fourth hymn. And then I heard every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The whole scene is one of doxology. The whole scene is one of intensity. And as I said last week, I don't expect, I hope you don't expect to be bored in heaven. You picture the, the greatest wedding you've ever been to, maybe yours, I hope, um, or the greatest rock concert. Um, and it's going to be so much better than that. Uh, if you hate rock, it's certainly going to be better than that. But uh, if you think of uh, just the most exciting kind of situation you've better, ever been in, um, it is going to be that. So you really have this emotional range in this description of the centering throne of God from John weeping to all of kind of creation exalting. And he takes us from the despair of a kind of nihilistic nothingness to the ecstasy of the great redemptive provision of God. And that's what chapter 5 in the book of Revelation I think is all about in graphically describing I would like our high school students to understand the agony that John was in if there is nothing more. I'd like you and I to feel that as well. But at some point in our maturation, in our experience in the Christian life, I think we have to come to the place of, with John weeping, is there really nothing more? Is this all there is? When I was in college uh, in the 60s, um, at a tumultuous time, Bob Weber was a theologian who was on our campus. He taught New Testament studies. And uh, he uh, gave a chapel in which his main theme was Peggy Lee's, if that's all there is, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze. And, and it was shocking. It was shocking to the student body. People started weeping. There was a palpable emotional impact. Somehow that morning, that day, he got through. And people were confronted with, students were confronted with the reality, if there isn't a Christ, if that's all there is, then let's just keep dancing, let's break out the boobs. And I think until you get to this stage where John was in this scene, you really haven't grasped the faith. It may be part of cultural tradition, cultural Christianity, um, 
It may be part of the ethos in which you and I are raised. But until it's kind of owned and somebody says to us, don't weep. There is the lion, there is the lamb, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the son of David. He can open the scroll. He can make this revelation understood and come alive. That's what I see as, as really important here in this description of the throne of God. Um, Yeats, Yeats laments the disintegration of civilization. I'm looking at number six in his poem, The Second Coming. Uh, and he writes, The center cannot hold Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world, the blood-dimmed tide is loosened, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. As the seals are opened, Yeats' lament of a fallen world fits John's vision. But for the apostle, the question is not, will the center hold, but will we hold to the center? John remains on the island of Patmos. His circumstances have not changed, but he's caught up in this powerful, exuberant worship. And the words of the elders resound in his hearing. Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So what we'll do going forward next week, I'm not here. Uh, Virginia and I are in Knoxville. I'm preaching at Cedar Springs Presbyterian Church. But the week after, we'll be back and in Chapter 6. And in Chapter 6, we'll try to explore the present state of our human condition uh, under the opening of the first four seals, um, a description that I think we are dealing with now. Um, so if you're for homework, you can think of all the ways that uh, you would describe the human condition and the pressure that it's, that it's under. Any comments that you have on John weeping and God's answer to that weeping that you would like? I don't like? think that he wept because he didn't think it was true. Because, I mean, this was a disciple... He had been with Jesus. He saw the resurrection. He took care of his mother. I just think that he yearned for it to be open, so the consummation would occur. He wrote the Gospel of John prior to writing Revelation. I don't know. I just, I just think that he, he feels passionately. I know this is true. Somebody, please open the scroll and let's get this moving forward. I don't know if that's. Well, he says here, and he, you know, uh, the one who's weeping is the one who gives us the chronicle. So we're very close here to the statement of uh, description and the person who's feeling it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll. And it gives us, James, not a report on, James, on John's faithfulness, but it gives us a description of what life would be like if this isn't, if there isn't a meta narrative, if there isn't the story of the gospel, if there isn't a consummation, if there isn't a culmination of all that we've been looking at, if it just ends with us 
And this refutes the whole idea that Christianity is really nice, whether it's true or not, because it makes for better living. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't. We don't believe in a lie so that we have a more decent life. And that, that goes with uh, what I said last week. It always seems impossible that it was just a week ago. Um, but I said last week in the Luke 7 message, Blemeyer is quoting that we've got to empathize with the world that to believe what we believe, all of that big stuff is hard to believe. And I think John is at the vortex here of describing for us the despair that would be if Christ is not real. And it comes, it issues out of this powerful worship. Worship drives him to this. It has fired his emotions. He's energized by the whole reality. So I don't think it's commentary on whether John at this point is uh, an unbeliever about it at all. Um, yeah. How to, you know, that that's interesting what you raise because I need to maybe spend more time clarifying. Uh, I don't think there's any question of his faith here. I think the question is the big picture of whether or not it's real. And he's describing for us the passion of that. John. Well, and, and 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 another parallel to that, which you know, I think Ecclesiastes is really written from the faith standpoint, but you have to work to see it. Um, but again, he puts us in the shoes of this despair, if indeed faith is not real. Paul does the same thing. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile, and there's no point in what we're doing. So Christians have had the um, the courage of stating it in that sort of blunt, distilled fashion. If this isn't true, we're wasting our time. Don't weep, because there is the the Lamb. The Lion of the tribe of Judah, the son of David, he can open the scrolls. Tom? I was going to say that the uh, kind of an answer to Peggy Lee's song, uh, Keep on Dancing, yeah. for me at least, was the Edwin Ockham singers. A little bit later, came out with an album in the middle of the Vietnam War. This song, Oh Happy Day. So we've got Peggy Lee. With all the other music. If that's all there is, then let's keep dancing with Oh, Happy Day. Uh, interesting. Um, it was Oh, Happy Day, the day Jesus washed my sins away. And a lot more about that. I would agree completely. Um, those two songs are, uh, are resonant. Um, I think that going back to Weber's um, preaching, speaking in chapel, I think what had its impact was that he so poignantly and in a way bravely framed the issue for students. It is a kind of all or nothing. It is either real or it's not. 
and I, I think it's just really important for all of us to come to to terms with that. Um, any other comment? Yeah, um, it's interesting, you know, Jesus wept. Um, I was thinking about this w- this week, I, you know, my work in the Psalms. Um, and uh, when David, uh, in Psalms 3 through 7, you have the Absalom Rebellion, and David leaves Jerusalem. And as he walks down into the Kindred Valley and up to the Mount of Olives, he's weeping. He's uh, Shulis and uh, Shema, the, um, the Saul descendant, is throwing rocks at David. And it's a horrendous scene, and he's weeping as he goes. Um, and it ties in with Jesus and Jesus weeping at Lazarus' grave, weeping over Jerusalem. Uh, its lostness, weeping in Gethsemane, weeping so hard he's sweating um, drops of blood, as it were. Um, And, you know, the, and then John weeping. Um, What it, what I think all of that speaks to me is the, the intensity and the poignancy and the reality of real faith in God. And yet how often unmoved we are um, almost inert almost like this is old hat this is um, uh, I just you know and it the poignancy of the pointedness of it is missing for us um, a good book to read along these lines is death by suburb by David Getz um, we become in a sense immune inoculated I should say to the realities of our faith, oftentimes within our culture. And it really doesn't have the, the intensity and the poignancy. David Getz, Death by Suburb. Um, Death by Suburb. Um, you know, I, I learned an expression this week that I had not heard, but apparently is common knowledge, that Mountain Brook is referred to as the tiny kingdom. Have you heard that before? I had never heard that before, and I've lived here for 12 years, uh, the tiny kingdom. Um, and that sets up a contrast in my mind between the tiny kingdom and Christ for his kingdom, uh, Christ in his kingdom, uh, which is, by the way, the, the mission statement, the motto for Wheaton College. Any other comments or thoughts? How are we, well, we should pray. Anything else? Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that something of John's passion for you would come through in our lives, convince us of this truth that is so large, so great, so wonderful, so redemptive. Uh, Embrace us with this encircling doxology in gratitude and thanksgiving for you. Together we praise you in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.